turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. We're continuing our Mythbusters series this morning. It's our summer series that's going to take us right through the summer. I kicked it off before I went away on vacation, and then for the past two weeks, Pastor Joel uh, did part one and part two in this series, and today I have the privilege to, uh, to preach part three of this Mythbusters series. If this is your first time at Liberty or your first time hearing a message in this series, let me just briefly uh, give you a recap. The purpose of this entire series is to bust common myths concerning core doctrines. We're busting common myths concerning core doctrines, uh, fundamental and essential doctrines to Christianity, things that if you don't believe You're not actually Christian. Now, you can doubt some of these things. You can question some of these things. But if you reject them, you don't believe them, then you're not in Orthodox Christianity. You've gone on ahead. And 2 John 1.9 tells us that if we don't abide in the teaching, we don't have God. But if we abide in the teaching, we have the Father and the Son. And so the the purpose of this series is to bust common myths concerning core doctrines. The series is important because truth matters. Truth is important, and more than ever, truth is important. The myths that we're talking about in this series, they don't come from Greek mythology or Roman paganism or Norse uh, mythology. The myths that we're talking about actually have origin, or have their origin, rather, in bad theology itching ears and carnal desires. That's what what the Apostle Paul told Timothy would happen. He said a time would come when people wouldn't endure sound doctrine, sound teaching. They wouldn't endure the truth. But having itching ears, they would accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own carnal passions. And in doing so, they would turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so the myths that we're busting, they come from bad theology. When people don't endure sound teaching, they'll endure unsound teaching. When they don't endure uh, biblical teaching, they'll endure some other kind of teaching because they have itching ears and carnal desires. And the, and the, the reason we're busting these myths, it's a loving effort to ensure that you and I receive a crown of righteousness. Just before this key verse, Paul tells young pastor Timothy that he's run the race, he's fought the fight, and there's laid up for him a crown of righteousness in heaven. And then Paul goes on to say that that crown of righteousness is actually for everyone who loves his appearing. Who's appearing? Christ's appearing. The, the, the doctrine of Christ's return, of his second coming of his appearing is a core doctrine. And, and, and Paul says that if you love this teaching, this doctrine, if you love the truth that Jesus is coming again, you can have assurance that you'll receive a crown of righteousness when he comes. There's no righteousness without right belief. And we've said in this series many times, if you believe wrong, you'll never live strong. You can't live a victorious Christian life, a spirit-filled Christian life, and have bad theology and bad doctrine. It's not possible. You can question, you can doubt, you can wonder, but you can't reject the sound teachings of Scripture and say, yeah, I'm in, and when Christ returns, I'll have my crown of righteousness. It doesn't work that way. You believe right, and you will be righteousness. In fact, our righteousness comes through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Our key verse tells us that when the word of God is not preached, when there is no sound teaching, people will turn away and wander off. Sound teaching is our anchor. It keeps us secure. It keeps us tethered. It keeps us hitched to reality. And when truth is not preached, people become unhitched, untethered from reality. They turn away from it and they wander off into myths. And as I mentioned before, 2 John 1.9 tells us that when people wander off, they don't have God and rewards are lost. Now, does that mean you lose your salvation? I 
Can't say that for sure based on that passage. Sounds like it, but John says, if you don't abide, you don't have God. And then he tells his listeners, be careful to abide in the teaching so that we do not lose our reward. What's the reward? The reward is Jesus. And when we have Jesus, we have assurance of heaven. I know that if you're wandering off into all kinds of myths, you don't have any assurance. You're confused. You're wondering. You're speculating. But if you abide in the teaching, if you abide in Jesus, if you say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only trust in Jesus' name. When all around my soul gives way, he is all my hope and stay. If you would say that today, you'll walk out that back door with such assurance. You'll know that you're saved and on your way to heaven. And no matter what you face in this life, you know that you'll get through it because Jesus is with you. That's why good doctrine, sound teaching, that's why truth is so important. Now, today we're going to talk about the core doctrine of creation and the fall. So we're busting common myths concerning core doctrines. So we're going to talk about the core doctrine, and then we're going to bust some myths about it. Before we read from the text, let's get some context. I would say today that the biblical account of creation is the foundation for our worldview. Now, the biblical account of creation is not the foundation of our faith, that is Jesus Christ, but the foundation of our worldview, how we see the world, how we interact with its creator and his creatures and his creation. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, it forms our, the foundation of our worldview. Our, our concept of reality is built upon this foundation. This, this uh, foundation uh, establishes for us a hierarchy. God at the top, then human beings, and then the rest of creation. That is God's Hierarchy. He is a God of hierarchy, and he is at the top of it. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 emphasizes the transcendent nature of God, that God is above all that he has created, and he exists apart from it. God created time. He created space. God exists outside of it, and he is supreme over it. That's our worldview that God is supreme and that we were created in his image and that everything else that has been put in this earth is for us to subdue and to steward. God is above all, though. He is so altogether different. He is not like us. God is holy. He's separate. He's set apart. In fact, the Bible calls him thrice holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's absolutely nothing like you. And as we'll talk in a few moments, being created in his image and likeness doesn't mean that he's like you in any way. You're like him in one way in particular. And so God is supreme and he is transcendent. Genesis chapter 1 doesn't tell us how God manufactured the world other than it tells us he spoke and it happened and that's good enough for me. I don't need to go beyond the text here. But the purpose of Genesis 1 is not to tell us how God did it. The purpose of Genesis 1 is to explain to us that God is above all and that he has set boundaries for us. He has established boundaries for humanity and for his creatures and for all of creation. So let's take a look at the creation account. We're going to hit the highlights. Okay, so you're going to follow along with me. Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 1, it says, in the beginning. So before there was time, before there was space, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. And then in verse 3, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So that's how God did it. He spoke it, and it happened immediately. Verse 5 says that he called the light day and the darkness night, and there was evening and morning on the first day. Sounds like a 24-hour period to me. 
Verse 6, then God said, let there be firmament in the midst of the water. So he's setting boundaries. He's separating things. He's making things binary. It's this or it's that. He's separating things. He's setting boundaries. He's establishing his preeminence over it. Verse 8 says, again, after he did this, there was morning and there was evening, second day. Skip down to verse 14. God puts lights in the heavens. He divides the day from the night, and he lets the lights in the heavens be uh, be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. We talked a few weeks ago about how God establishes the times. And God is Lord over time. He exists above it and outside of it, but he is Lord of it. Verse 20 says that God uh, said, let there be waters and let them abound with the abundance of living creatures. So God is making creatures that live in the water. And then he goes on to make creatures that live on the dry land. And then he says in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind. And here God is establishing boundaries and he's establishing binaries and he's creating things according to their kind. He's setting these beautiful, perfect boundaries. And then in verse 26, he says to the Trinity, he says to the Spirit and to the Son, who was the Word of God, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And what is that image and likeness? Dominion. He says, let them have dominion over all the created things, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God did it. He created mankind in his image and in his likeness with dominion over the creation. Remember, God established a hierarchy here in chapter 1. He is supreme. Then his, uh, the, uh, the apple of his eye, the object of his affection, humankind, the pinnacle of his creation. He gives them the same dominion or similar dominion that he has. That's the image that we bear. And then in verse 27, so God created them in his image. He created them male and female. Here's another binary, another boundary. God creates them male and female. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. He gives them a purpose. He says, here, I've created you male and female, and the purpose is that you would procreate, that you would be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything Skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Then the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day you eat of it you shall surely die. There's another boundary. There's another boundary. God says, I'm going to put you in this place. And I'm going to give you everything in this garden to eat. Eat from every tree and enjoy it. It's good food. But the fruit from that tree, do not touch it. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is at the top of the hierarchy, remember? He can make this command and demand of humanity. Well, we know the story, I think. They ate the fruit and... They were punished for it. Chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. It says this. After they'd eaten from the fruit, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of God. They immediately knew that they had broken God's law, that they had crossed his boundary. And in crossing that boundary, they sinned against a holy God who is different than them who is altogether different. And so because they sinned against this holy God, they were punished. Verse 9 says, The Lord called to him and said, Where are you, Adam? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. When you're confronted with your sin, it is normal for you to be afraid of God because every sin is a sin against a holy God. And unless we are washed in the blood of Jesus and clothed in his righteousness, when we stand before him one day, we will stand condemned. But we don't have to. That's why when God curses the man and the woman, he also provides a way of escape. For he says, a time will come when I will send a deliverer to crush the serpent and deliver you. 
but in verse 19 of chapter 3, it says this. God says to Adam, he says to the man, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. From our text, we see three things. They're on the screen for you. First, God is the loving designer and creator of all time, space, and matter. God lovingly designed time, space, and everything in it. He is the intelligent and loving designer of everything we see and experience in the world. God is also the author of all life. Nothing lives and moves and has its being apart from God. God is the author of all life. He is at the top of the hierarchy. In him is life. And we can also see that God creates things that are good. In fact, all that God creates is good. And in fact, he called you and I, when he created humankind, very good. We are the object of his affection, the apple of his eye. God loves us above all. We learn that from our text. Number two, from our text, we see that human beings are created in the Imago Dei. The image of God. We have been given free will and dominion and authority as God has free will, dominion, and authority over all. So he gives it to us and gave it to us at creation. But he set boundaries for us. Because we are made in the image of God, we are therefore accountable to God for our actions. Accountability to a holy God sets the boundaries for our actions. When God said to Adam and Eve, you can have fruit from all these trees, not, but not that one, he set a boundary. They were accountable to God for that boundary. Part of the reason why he came down in the cool of the day, to check on them, to hold them accountable, to teach them, to love them, to have relationship with them but to always keep them accountable to the boundary. But what did they do? They crossed it. And because they crossed the boundary, original sin entered the picture. And because of original sin, the nature of human beings has fallen into corruption. And because our nature, our innermost being, has fallen into corruption, we are rightly destined to die. That's what our text tells us. For when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they die right away? No. They didn't die right away. But sin entered the world and death through sin and eventually Adam and Eve died. But something died right away to cover them. The Bible tells us that God killed, uh, sorry, made tunics of skin and clothed Adam and Eve, clothed their nakedness. Their attempts to cover themselves were futile. They picked fig leaves and tried to cover themselves up. God had to kill an animal and take its flesh to cover the sin of the people, to cover the shame and the nakedness. Original sin has messed everything up. And sometimes we think of original sin and we go, that's not fair. I'm paying for Adam's sin. Let me ask you, have you ever sinned? Did anybody teach you how to do it or did you just know how to do it? I think you knew how to do it. I knew how to do it right away. Well, David says in Psalm 53 that uh, they have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And in Psalm 58, he says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And so that's the word of God. It tells us that from the very beginning, from birth, we're estranged from God. We have original sin in us. We're not paying for Adam's sin. We're quite capable of sinning on our own because we have a fallen nature. We have a fallen nature. We were created in the image of God, and we still do bear that image. But the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 5 that Adam had a son, and that son, Seth, was born in the image of his father. And every one of us today have been born in the image of our own father. We've been born with a sin nature the way he was. And because of that, we are accountable to God. And if we don't get our sins off of us and on to Jesus when we stand before a holy God one day, we will be guilty of breaking his law. And the only just consequence for guilt against a holy God 
is an eternity separated from him in hell. So that's our core doctrine. That's what we believe here at Liberty Church. That's what the Bible teaches us. That is the truth. Whether you like it or not, that's for you to decide. But we're going to ask two questions about this truth. We're going to ask, what does the zeitgeist say, and how has the zeitgeist crept into the church? So for the time that's left to us, that's the two questions we're going to answer today. So what does the zeitgeist say? Well, the zeitgeist is the common, or sorry, rather, the, uh, the, the prevailing mood or spirit of our time. And so what is the culture saying? What is, what is uh, society saying about our origins and our nature? We know what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created us and that we have a fallen nature. But what does the world say? What does the zeitgeist say? Well, the first thing the, the zeitgeist says, and you've heard this, uh, it's that the natural world, the universe, if you will, is just the result of blind, unguided evolution. That this just happened. That somewhere along the way, uh, something combusted and caused a big bang, and from there, everything started to expand. And what we are now is just the result of blind, unguided evolution. I mean, if you think of how big our universe is and how small the blue dot we live on is in comparison to it, and yet for all that they've explored, only that one little blue dot can sustain life to the extent that it can be sustained on our planet. And yet those very same people will say that all of that just so happened. But we know that they are blinded. They cannot see the truth. They don't have ears to hear. But the culture tells us that the natural world is the result of blind, unguided evolution. And if your children are in public school, that's exactly what they're being taught from JK through to grade 12 and beyond. That there was no loving and intelligent designer who created us and who established a hierarchy and who established boundaries for us. No, this is just blind, unguided evolution. Just by chance, we happen to be here. The zeitgeist also says that man is the author of God, that, that, that God is man-made, that we made him up, that he's a figment of our imagination, that God himself is the myth. The Bible tells us that man is God-made and created in his image with dominion and with a binary, male and female, for the purpose of procreation, to fill the earth and subdue it and to, to bring stewardship to the earth. But the zeitgeist says that, well, God is man-made, that we made him up, that we made this book up, and that the belief in this God is just, is just a crutch to help you get through an otherwise meaningless life. The zeitgeist says that the God that is man-made is also outdated and inherently bad. The zeitgeist says that man is only accountable to himself. You've heard this attitude in the world today. Do things that make you happy. Live your truth. Live your best life. And on and on it goes. Be accountable only to you. You only get one chance at life, so live it the way you want to live it. Live it on your terms. The zeitgeist says that man is only really accountable to himself. And finally, the zeitgeist says that man is inherently good. That at his core, he is good. And, and, and this is really the first principle of, of what is called secular humanism, which says that humanity is capable of morality and fulfillment apart from God, which is the exact opposite of what Christianity professes, that mankind exists to, uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That there is no morality and no fulfillment in our life apart from God. But secular humanism says that there is a morality that derives from man and, and we can fulfill ourselves if we, if we be our true, authentic self, if we find out who that is deep down inside of us and unlock that person and let them out, then we can be fulfilled because that person we are deep down is inherently good. So the world says, Christianity says the opposite, that deep down we are inherently bad. We are 
we are, uh, we are totally depraved. The deeper we go, the more darkness we'll find. And only Jesus is the one that can set us free from that. So how has this crept into the church? Because that's what we're asking. Uh, how has the zeitgeist crept into the church and created myths surrounding the truth of God's word? Remember, our text says that when the truth is not preached, people turn away from truth and wander off into myths. The zeitgeist is presenting you with myths that the natural world just happened and that that. God is man-made and that man is only accountable to himself and that he's inherently good. But how has this crept into the church? Well, it's crept in through a movement called the deconstruction movement. You may have heard that word. Today, many Christians are, quote, deconstructing their faith. They're deconstructing God, the Bible, and Christianity. Why? To make it more suitable to the culture and themselves. This word is not suitable to me. There's lots of stuff in here I love to change. But it's the word of God. And I conform my life to it. I don't conform it to my life. That's not how it works. But many pastors and many Christians are deconstructing this. They're deleting portions of it. They're, they're rearranging how you understand it and reinterpret it to make it more acceptable to the culture and to themselves. I was reading an article this week by Focus on the Family, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote one paragraph from it. It says, for some, uh, deconstruction is the process of disentangling from harmful and toxic cultural attitudes that have filtered into the church and embracing a purer, more biblical faith that reflects the truth of the gospel. That is a good thing, something all followers of Christ should do. We should always be uh, purifying and purging from our faith and our, and our mind that which is not of God, okay? But here's what's happening in the culture today, especially among those who are younger, who are a part of this deconstruction movement. In most cases, those who are deconstructing, deconstructing are actually redefining or rejecting core doctrines of the Christian faith. Not just purging from those core doctrines uh, bad influences and bad interpretation, but they're actually redefining and rejecting core doctrines uh, to make it more in line with cultural values. This is deadly to one's spiritual health and often leads to deconversion, the total abandonment of the faith. And that's where I go with 2 John 1, 9. If you don't abide in the teaching, you don't have God. When I say, will you lose your salvation? I don't think you'll lose it by accident, but you may end up deconverting. You may end up walking so far away from the faith that you don't have the faith that you started with. That's why uh, Paul told Titus that the men of God that preach the word must hold to the trustworthy word as taught. So it was taught, it was given, it was revealed, as is, and it doesn't change. It doesn't, uh, you know, uh, move or, or capitulate to the culture, but rather everything must conform to it as it was taught, as it was given. And so we don't want to abandon the faith. We don't want to be guilty of going on ahead and wandering off but we want to hold to the trustworthy word as taught. And so that's how I believe the zeitgeist has crept in through the deconstruction movement. Are there things that we should deconstruct or reconstruct? Yeah, I would, I would say for sure. But many people are using it as an excuse to deconvert and walk away from God altogether. And so this deconstruction movement has created bad theology, and bad theology is the first step on the slippery slope to heresy and to deconversion and to walking away from God and losing the reward. So let's talk about bad theology and then we'll conclude. Here's some bad theology concerning creation and the fall. I'm not saying it's heresy. I'm just saying it's bad theology. It's error and it often leads to heresy. Remember the slippery slope, right? Bad theology, 
that comes from unbelief, that leads to error, that ends in heresy and leaving the church and leaving the faith altogether. Here's the first uh, bit of bad theology concerning creation and the fall. And that is that many in the church today are preaching and teaching and many are believing that the creation account is just a story. That it's historic literature, but it is not historic fact. That it is not scientific fact. Uh, Tim Mackey, maybe you know him. He's from the Bible Project. You definitely have seen his videos on YouTube. Uh, you know all the little drawings and illustrations of of the books of the Bible and 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 their format and what they represent. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project on the Almost Heretical podcast uh, suggests that creation is merely a representation a representation of what really happened. He said that the Hebrew Bible comes from a people group who is representing their understanding of history through the stories of the Old Testament, that, that the creation account is just a representation of what happened, that, that uh, the Tower of Babel just represents something, that the flood is representative, that, that Jonah and the whale is representative of something that happened, but it's not historical fact, it's just historic literature. Now, I mean, Tim Mackey has a huge channel on YouTube, a huge following, but he's deconstructing this uh, creation narrative specifically because he is LGBTQ confirming or affirming. And so in order for him to be affirming of that movement, he has to deconstruct and walk away from the boundaries and binaries that God sets in the beginning, And so he has to call it a suggestion. He has to call it a representation. And so that's one thing that's crept into the church. One bad theology saying that it's just representative. It's allegorical. Here's another bad theology concerning creation and the fall. It's that evolution was guided by God. This is also called theistic evolution. Uh, I've mentioned him before, I'll mention him again, Andy Stanley, who was one of my favorites for a long time, but I have marked and avoided him. He has uh, gone astray and needs to repent and come back to Orthodox Christianity. But during a sermon at a recent pastor's conference at his church in Atlanta, uh, he said this, there's no necessary conflict between evolution and theism because evolution is a means He says, theism says that there was an agent, an intelligent designer, the Genesis account of creation. The point here is not how God did it, but that he did it. And when you take this at face value, you go, yeah, that makes sense. And I said something very similar at the beginning of this message. But if you go on to listen to this message, what Andy is saying is that God used evolution to create the universe and the Uh, creatures that live in the sea and on the dry land and humanity itself, that God did it, but he did it through means of evolution. He has now become a theistic evolutionist. This is bad theology. This is error, and error only begets error. Why is Andy saying this? Because he too has become rainbow affirming. He too, he has to abandon God's boundaries and binaries from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in order to do that. And so why has he gone the route of uh, theistic evolution? Because he's rainbow affirming. He's affirming the demonic ideology represented by the progress pride flag. I'm not saying those people are bad, but their movement is. Those people are people for whom Jesus died. Uh, We need to preach the gospel to them as we need to preach it to ourselves every day, as Martin Luther said, because so easily we forget. However, Andy has become sympathetic and affirming to the movement. And in order to justify it, you have to undo the foundation 
You have to, in his words, unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Here's other bad theology that, me, that God is accountable to man. This is a social media post that I often see. A lot of people that I know are in the deconstruction movement who are basically deconverting. I see them post this all the time. It's on the screen for you. It says, how long could you torture one of your children in a lake of fire? How about your enemy? Could you, could you stand it for even five minutes? Could you stand it until they died? If you had the power to torture them forever with no end to their pain and horror, would you? The answer is, of course not. So I guess you have more love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion than your God. This, this, rep, this post represents the deconstruction movement uh, to a T. To a because the deconstruction movement makes God accountable to man. That God has to answer for his holiness. That God has to answer for the lake of fire and, and hell. And remember, God did not create the lake of fire for humanity. He created it for Satan and his demons. But humanity willfully sends themselves there when they live a life of rejection of God and his grace. His mercy, his forgiveness, his compassion, his love. God is not sending you there because he's a sadist and he wants to torture you forever. God is allowing you to go there because you've made your choice and he will not impose his will upon you. He is a good God, a loving God, a just God. He would be none of those things if he imposed his will on you. And what is his will? That none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. That's his will. That's what he wants for his children. But his children choose to willfully reject him. Oh, we don't have any love, any grace, any mercy, forgiveness, or compassion apart from God. We don't even know what those concepts are because at our core, we are totally deprived, depraved. Our human nature is fallen. It's corrupt. And then finally, here's one, one last bad theology concerning creation and the fall, and that is that man is basically good. I like to pick on him. He's good for it. Smiling Joel Osteen. In uh, message 494 of seeing people through the eyes of love in the spring of 2011 said this, 99.9% .9 of people are not bad. They may make poor choices, but deep down they're good at heart. Now, if, if you read this, and again, at face value, you may, you may agree with it. You, you know people that do good things. You yourself do good things. We have a proclivity towards goodness just as we have a nature towards evil. Remember, we still bear the Imago Dei. Remember, God said of humanity, very good. But the core of our being is inherently evil. It's wicked. It's corrupt. The heart of man is wicked and deceitful. People are not basically good. People are... Uh, totally depraved. Now, people are not utterly depraved. The word utterly depraved means that there is no good in them whatsoever and that they are incapable of doing any good. The word and term utterly depraved uh, means that one cannot be redeemed. Satan and his demons are utterly depraved. They cannot be redeemed. But mankind is totally depraved. But Jesus saves us utterly. From the uttermost, he saves and rescues us. And so Jesus, when he saves us, doesn't make us 99.9% .9 good. He makes us 100% righteous, 100% holy, 100% sanctified, and with a 100% guarantee of a home in heaven. All we have to do to receive that 100% guarantee is to admit that we are totally depraved, that we are not good at heart, but that we are wicked at heart, 
and that God is the only one that can take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, with his law written on it, the law of love, to love him with all your innermost being and to love one another as you love yourself. Only God can do that. It's the greatest miracle, and he performs it all the time. So in conclusion, let me say this, and thank you for being so attentive. I love you and appreciate you. In conclusion, let me say this. I understand today that there are things about our origin and about human nature that are difficult to understand. It's, it's hard to understand that a being existed in eternity before time and that he always existed. We are finite. We we do wrestle with this idea that, that God, eternal, omniscient, uh, all-powerful, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent everywhere at once, that, that he existed before what we see. I admit today that there are things about our origin and about human nature that are difficult to understand and that themselves sound like myths. But the Bible makes objective truth claims that are either true or false. And it all has to be true or it all has to be false. I don't have enough faith to believe that some of it's true and some of it's false. I only have enough faith to believe that it's all true or it's all false. There are many in the world who who say that they're atheists or that they don't have faith, but they have more faith than they realize. It takes a lot of faith to believe in nothing. It takes even more faith to believe in some of this. It takes faith the size of a mustard seed to believe that this is all true, or it's not. And the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a prepositional statement. It is what it is, or it's not. And I today have faith that it is all true as written Understanding that it's difficult to believe. I understand that. I get it. But believing difficult and unusual things is not a bad thing. Believing in the creation account doesn't make you a science denier. Believing in the word of God simply admits that there are ways that are higher than ours and thoughts that are higher than ours. And I'm glad that there are ways higher than mine. I'm glad that there are thoughts higher than mine. I don't know about you. Refusing to believe the difficult and unusual things about our origin, about God's eternal existence, and about our fallen nature, they inevitably lead to the sin of unbelief. Now, refusing to believe something is different than having doubts and questions. And I I would encourage all of us to question what we believe all the time, to constantly criticize it and, and scrutinize it to test it against the word of God and to study and to become students of the word. There's a difference between having some doubts or some questions and refusing to believe and outright rejecting. But when we refuse to believe, it inevitably leads to the sin of unbelief. When we unhitch our worldview, when we untether our worldview from its foundation, When we knock our worldview off of its foundation, it will lead us into error. And when we are in error, we have no assurance. Error will always produce within us the opportunity for heresy. And heretics will always branch off, wander off, break off, and go on ahead, as 2 John 1.9 says. And when they do, they do not have God. How does having a right understanding of creation and the fall invite someone to follow Jesus? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, how does what I said today invite you to follow Jesus? Well, the gospel we preach at Liberty Church, the gospel that we affirm, it assumes that everyone is born a sinner. If you're in this place today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you haven't confessed with your mouth, and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, I have to warn you, I have to tell you, you are a sinner. And you stand condemned by God and his law. 
All of us in this room today were sinners at one point. Maybe some of us still are. But many of us are saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, who paid our penalty. We stand condemned by God and his law and the righteous requirement of his law for lawbreakers is death. That is the wage of sin. Everyone must pay it. But the beautiful thing is Jesus has paid the wages. All you have to do is accept his payment on your behalf. And your record of debt against God, your sin against God can be washed away, wiped away today. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner and that Jesus is the one and only Savior. You can't save yourself. You're the problem. It's impossible for the problem to be the solution. All of us here today who are saved, we recognized that we were the problem and that Jesus is the one and only solution. And when we did, the burden of our heart rolled away and we have lived victorious ever since. Oh, we've struggled. We've experienced, you know, the weight of the world and, you know, we've We've gone astray at times. We all like sheep do, but Jesus has us. Our good shepherd has us, and he guides us every step of the way. So if you're here today and you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus, let today be the day that you do that. How does having a right understanding of creation and the fall inspire the rest of us to obey Jesus? Well, the foundation of our worldview, Genesis 1, puts Jesus at the top of the hierarchy. You know, when we read Genesis 1, we say that God is at the top of the hierarchy. And then John chapter 1 tells us that nothing that was made was made apart from Jesus. That Jesus is the word of God that was spoken at creation. And that from that word, everything that exists, exists. And that he is preeminent. The Bible tells us that God is putting everything under the feet of Jesus. He has all authority. He is preeminent. He is supreme. He's at the top of the hierarchy that God established in Genesis 1. He's the king above all kings. He's the Lord above all lords. He's supreme. And he has the name that is above every name. Everything is under his authority, under his rule. And one day he will, with that authority, judge the world. And if that doesn't inspire you to obey Jesus, then nothing will. If that doesn't inspire you to obey Jesus, I'm not sure that you've gotten saved yet. If hearing those words about Jesus, that he's king of kings, lord of lords, supreme, with the name above every name, with all authority, who will come to judge the world one day, if that doesn't inspire your obedience, then I'm not sure you've gone through the first step yet, which is bow your knee and, and humbled yourself before the Lord. And then how does a right standing of creation in the fall align with our vision as a church and as a body? Well, we endeavor to be a Bible-based church, and we don't make any apologies for it. I'll never apologize for preaching the word of God. Am I capable of making mistakes? Absolutely, I am. I'm just human. And so if I make a mistake, I'll admit it, absolutely. But I'll never apologize for preaching the word of God as written. I'll never apologize for taking it at face value, for interpreting it literally, unless it tells me to do otherwise. I'll never apologize for when plain sense makes sense, seeking no other sense. If I don't like what the word says, then I'll adjust my life to conform to it and not the other way around. And that's the kind of people we want to be at Liberty Church. People who relentlessly reform our attitudes and actions to conform to the scriptures. While other churches are deconstructing God, 
deleting portions of the Bible and altering Orthodox Christianity, at Liberty Church, we will seek to remove every trace of cultural infiltration and reform our beliefs, reform our practices to the standard that is revealed in Scripture. This is the highest authority in my life, in my marriage, in my family. This is the highest authority in this church. If you're looking for some other form of authority to be the highest at a church, then this is not the church for you. The Bible holds the highest place of authority at Liberty Church. Yes, our traditions have some authority, and our reason and our logic has some authority, and of course, what we experience has some authority, but all of those things must submit to the Word of God, which itself is infallible, inerrant, and immutable. As your pastor, it is my commitment to fulfill the charge that the Apostle Paul gave Titus, and I think by extension, all pastors. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, he says this, that the man of God must hold fast and be faithful to the word as taught, that he might be able to teach sound doctrine and both exhort and rebuke those who contradict it. That's my mandate as your pastor, to hold to the trustworthy word, to expound on the trustworthy word to you, to teach you, to preach, for us to grow together in our knowledge of the word and Jesus by his spirit. And if ever we need to rebuke one another, because we're contradicting the word, then we'll do that too. And so, I would submit to you today that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord, it endures forever. You think about that, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, God.